This is Akpod. I'm Erin Ransford, and I'm here with our host, Dr. Ismail Nabil. Dr. Nabil is an associate professor in the Department of Environmental Medicine and Public Health at the Icon School of Medicine. He is a fellow of the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine and is the chair of ACOM's Council on Scientific Affairs. Our guest today is Dr. Zeke McKinney. Dr. McKinney is the Occupational and Environmental Medicine Program Director at Health Partners and is an affiliate assistant professor at the University of Minnesota School of Public Health. He is the current president of Advocates for Better Health, formerly known as the Twin Cities Medical Association. Today is December 22nd, 2022. On today's episode, Dr. McKinney and Dr. Nabil discuss the future of occupational and environmental medicine. Thank you so much, Dr. McKinney. Hi to you and welcome. Happy holidays and hi. Thank you. Welcome, Dr. Nabil. Oh, hi, Aaron. Most people know Zeke McKinney as assuming so many roles in American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine. But that is things that inspires me every time I talk to Zeke is looking to the future of our specialty, particularly occupational and environmental medicine. Things are changing at a fast pace, but Zeke has always looked at new challenges as new opportunities. So let's talk a little bit about it. What do you think, Zeke? Where are we heading? Yeah, well, there's a lot of things that we as a field need to face. You know, we had talked a little bit earlier about the future of occupational medicine, some of the issues we have with training and funding. I mean, to be quite honest, my biggest fear in life is that when I go to retire, our specialty won't exist anymore. And partially that's because we have one of the greatest proportion of physicians over age 55. So a lot of people are retiring every year. We're already a relatively small field. And both now and historically, we've only graduated somewhere between 80 and 100 residents a year. So we're not producing enough residents to really uh, make up for the number that are retiring. And right now, the demand is even higher than when I graduated residency, at least as far as I can tell. One of the problems we have is that the general populace doesn't know occupational medicine doctors exist. Other doctors, to a large degree, don't know occupational medicine doctors exist. The people who do know we exist, you know, employers, insurers, HR folks, safety managers, et cetera, uh, work comp attorneys, disability attorneys, whatever, stuff like that. They know we exist and they like us. They have no idea that we have this residency training and funding problem. And nobody in general, doctors or the general populace, knows how residency is funded. So there's like this multi-layered issue that people don't even realize these problems exist. But one day we won't be here. And I think that would be a, a big loss. And partially, I think we could do a better job of letting our colleagues and other specialties know how we can help them. Well said. But um, what are you doing about that um, as a residency director or as an advocate for occupational environmental medicine? So, you know, when Beth Baker was president a few years ago, she convened this task force to address the, the future of OEM. And part of that involved uh, talking about training and funding. And so uh, this little subgroup, including Judith McKenzie, Alia Khan, Carrie Redlick, and myself, put together this paper that talked about all of these training issues and all of these funding issues. And so that's out there now as an ACOM guidance statement and recently also got published in the Journal of Occupational Environmental Medicine. So that was step one, sort of framing the problem just so it's obvious to everyone what the different layers of this are and what we need to do. How do we solve it? Well, ACOM, independent of me, has been doing some legislative advocacy with Congress. And I think recently NIOSH got some funding to actually help fund the ERCs, the education resource centers that help fund occupational health and safety training as a whole, including occupational medicine. So that's one thing that I think is moving in the right direction. Me individually here in the state of Minnesota, I've been working with some local state representatives to try to develop some 
legislation to fund occupational medicine training through the Minnesota legislature. This is kind of a more traditional view of occupational medicine. And when I see you, you have a lot more that you work on on a daily basis from advocacy to new innovations to really looking at a whole different field of clinical informatics, which you have expertise in. How does the traditional occupational medicine is evolving into these new domains and new areas like environment, climate change, clinical informatics, and a lot more is coming? Yeah, to some degree, I would say part of it is, I think, a shift in the need and the demand. So if you think back to when occupational medicine started as a field, and I'm not talking all the way back to Ramazzini, but more like in the 20th century, you know, it came out of this need for employers to have doctors to address these workplace hazards and the fact that people were getting killed and injured at the job, which it turned out was more expensive to try to, you know, rehire and retrain somebody and deal with the lawsuits from the person's family or the person themselves and and blah, 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 blah. You know, if you actually take the time and get the worker better and get them back to work. You have saved yourself and them and everybody a lot of time and energy and money and everybody's happy. But philosophically, and partially, I think this is why the name changed from not only industrial medicine to occupational medicine, but also to now occupational and environmental medicine. I go so far as to say our specialty is really about environmental hazards. If they're at work, they're occupational. Outside of work, they're environmental. Sometimes those are the same things. I can lift a box at home or at work and hurt my back, but sometimes I might work at a chemical factory and get exposed to all kinds of stuff I would never have in a normal home environment. And so with that breadth of scope, suddenly the doors have opened for us to deal with a whole bunch of really relevant and important things, such as climate change, a huge environmental hazard, or you know, people like me dealing with environmental toxicology, what are the products that we produce and what are the effects they're having on people in the environment? Aside from just, you know, general classical sort of occupational medicine and, and the things we see there. And so uh, with that in mind, I guess the point I'm making is suddenly there is this ability for us to be really broad in our scope while still being very specialized around issues of, for example, causation, prevention, you know, root cause analysis, et cetera. Every time I try to define the specialty, it takes on a whole new different level. COVID changed many things. The pandemic itself has given us a whole new skill set and ability to look at employees and workers in a whole different light. I was especially struck by the work that you did in Minnesota, bringing vaccinations to a barbershop, which is a very cool thing to think about, connecting the people at the places where you least expect. How was your experience with that? Yeah, that was a really amazing experience. It's funny because earlier in my career, I was really interested in vaccination work. I was like, you know, as a prev med doc, but then kind of just sort of fell into classical Ahmed and thought it was never really going to be my thing. And then with COVID, I ended up working as a co-investigator on one of the vaccine trials for which my institution is a site. Because of that, being a black man and, and thinking about issues with people engaging in research, especially from communities of color, I did a lot of outreach here in the community, trying to reach parity with our population. That is to say, you know, if we have 20% of our population is black, then we should probably have 20% black people in our study to represent what our population is here, for example. And so I was doing a lot of work in the media talking about this trial and COVID and what's going on. Concurrently, totally by chance, I had to get a new barber got a recommendation for one over back in my old neighborhood in North Minneapolis where I grew up, a primarily black area. I'm black too, 
just for the listeners who can't see me. And when I went in there in June of 2020, I'm the only person wearing a mask. And I kind of freaked out and like almost ran out of there, but then said, well, wait a second. You know, if I really want to talk to people about COVID and risk mitigation, blah, 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 I got to hang out and just be here and deal with that. So at first I started asking these guys questions about this stuff and they look at me like I'm some kind of narc because they're like, who's this guy like asking all these questions? But, you know, I kept coming in there every month or so to get my hair cut and then they kept asking me more and more questions. My barber eventually, you know, this really got cool when like in January, right around when vaccines were available, I go in and he says, hey, how can I get a vaccine? And I was like, whoa, like, I didn't think you wanted to get one. What's that about? But for him, it was about being able to go and see his mom who's from uh, who lives in Chicago and he thought it would be the safest way to travel and keep her safe, et cetera. And I guess from us talking, he kind of got more into it. So then, you know, we started doing more outreach together. We did like a, a little sort of Facebook town hall that we streamed live on Facebook. We had people who were for the vaccine, people who were against the vaccine, people who were kind of in the middle. And we had this very open dialogue. It was actually funny because the people who were really against the vaccine. They came prepared with like a lot of printed misinformation stuff that like they wanted me to respond to. And I wasn't prepared to respond to that degree of detail, but it was cool anyway. And we had a nice polite conversation and talked about people's concerns. We ended up being featured thereafter for the Minnesota Department of Health in ads that were all over the state about, you know, getting vaccinated that featured myself and my barber and his daughter. We were like, you know, just talking about some of the questions people had, even like the stuff like, oh my God, people say that, you know, COVID vaccines are going to, you know, make you sterile and you're not going to be able to reproduce. Is that a real thing? You know, so that was pretty cool. Uh, and those ads actually back in 2021 were playing like during the Olympics, during the NBA finals, like all that stuff. So like people saw that there was a billboard of me like between here and Duluth. People, I people showed it to me. I never saw it. But this all culminated with this thing you were talking about with vaccines in the barbershop. So first of all, let me just be really clear and say, like, I'm not some kind of genius. This was not a novel idea for me. You know, it's been proven in the PrevMed literature for the history of time that, you know, if you basically do preventive health efforts in the community at places where people are comfortable, whether it's barbershops, churches, community centers, whatever places that different communities gather, it tends to be much more successful because, you know, nobody likes going into the clinic. And so that wasn't a novel idea. And this whole thing came from Joe Biden had met with the University of Maryland School of Public Health, and they wanted to have this shots at the shop initiative where they would give out grants. And this was actually through Shea Moisture, a company that makes hair stuff to give these little grants to barbershops and salons to have these events. Well, it turned out it was like $1,000 and it was going to be like a one day, maybe event or, or whatever, which is okay. But, you know, through working, volunteering at a lot of vaccine events, you know, let's say you have this thing where you have a gym rented at the YMCA and you have like a hundred people working there, various booths, not just COVID vaccination, but like HIV screening, cholesterol education, but I'm just making up stuff. And through that whole day, you get like 100 people vaccinated, which isn't bad, but it's like not a lot of people for the amount of resources you put into it. And so then you also have to consider, well, who are we really trying to reach? Who are the people for whom these barriers are great? Well, it's like, what if somebody didn't have transportation to get to that vaccine clinic that one day ever that it was going to happen or childcare, or they were worried about, you know, having an adverse reaction to the vaccine and missing a day of work the next day. Or more importantly, if they're like, well, gee, I'm, I'm maybe not ready yet. Maybe I'll come back next time and get it. Oops, there is no next time. So like, how do you actually reach those people? So we worked with the Minnesota Department of Health who had funding through the COVID CARES Act, and they were able to fund us doing a vaccine clinic at this barbershop every Friday and every Saturday for four hours for almost exactly a year. It was like, it went from July 9th to like June 30th. Most Saturdays, I was there myself, um, you know, doing stuff, talking to people. A few times I had to give vaccines, uh, but it was really cool. And we vaccinated about 1,100 people. We're going to write up a paper about it just because as far as I know, 
there's never been a year-long vaccine clinic. Very, very cool. Very, very interesting. That brings up a lot of different things. For example, doing occupational medicine and working with people who are in small business or not a corporate setting, really connecting with employees who work in these small businesses, small shops. I think our focus has always been corporate entities and not much focus on the people who are working in small business. And I I think your work itself brings a very interesting point in terms of not only COVID prevention, COVID-19 prevention, but in a sense, how to connect generally with the community and also bring occupational health awareness among small business entities. This could be a restaurant, this could be barbershops, or this could be small business around the country that we can bring our services and educate and enlighten or advocate for occupational health. A couple of times you talked about, as a black man, you felt that there are things that you can do or advocate for some issues that are not possible for others. How is equity important in terms of occupational medicine? Sure, well, first let's just start outside of occupational medicine where we know that social determinants of health are the greater contributor to health outcomes than our ability to deliver care. We know this to be true. It's been proven a million times. It turns out that systemic racism is also a social determinant of health and is confounded by, you know, all the other determinants, people having stable housing, stable employment, stable income, you know, access to healthcare, blah, blah, blah. And these are all mutually reinforcing. So, you know, it's not just like these things live on an island. If you're poor, that's a bad determinant. If you don't have a house, that's a bad determinant. If you're black, that's another determinant. And having all three of these is even worse, you know, altogether. And so in that regard, equity matters in general to the the health of the community. So then when you think about occupational health, and this became really important during COVID when we started talking about essential workers and the people who actually had to show up to a job, those were more commonly black, brown, and poor people. And those are people, of course, who are going to then have more exposure to COVID risk. And so all of that to make the point that we have uh, a subset of society. And again, you know, socioeconomic status is uh, as bad approximately as, you know, systemic racism, where they're just bad in different ways. You know, these are the people who are going to have jobs where the hazards are going to be worse, and they're going to have less access to have appropriate education and protection to take care of themselves. And that's where we come in. That's an important point in terms of experts in occupational environmental medicine. We, in our practice, has to account for differences that we see in our worker population. And the best way to do this is, is to really understand and learn about the people that we work with. And I think the medium like this also not only educate ourselves, but also help the general public to understand how we can address inequities, racial differences among our working populations. So this is a very important aspect, I think. Looking into the future of OEM, I think we need we should really address this um, in a more comprehensive way than we have done in the past. Do you think that the future of OEM is community-focused? Well, let's go back to what Dr. Nabil was saying about us having a focus on larger businesses. I think in part that's because they had the money and the resources to really do something about it. I mean, I think that's really what it comes down to. But at the end of the day, it's probably smaller businesses that need our attention more. And from the perspective of advocacy, you know, we can do a good job because we actually go out to these sites and see what people do. You had to have seen this, Dr. Nabil, in clinic where, you know, you see somebody who's like, oh, yeah, I'm a welder at this 
refrigeration plant and you say, oh, yeah, I've been there. And they're like, what? You've been to my job or you know what welders do? And it's like, yeah, that's my job to know that. And that's where we fill a gap that many physicians can't because, you know, look, to be fair, physicians as a class are quite privileged, including me. You know, a lot of us have gone through high school, college, medical school, residency, and never had a job and never seen anything outside of our ivory tower of medical education. And so no, I'm being honest. And so it's hard for us to envision, like, what is it like for this guy who's sitting there, you know, MIG welding on a ceiling all day where he's like has his neck in super high extension and, you know, has really bad neck and shoulder problems. And by the way, doesn't want to quit smoking and doesn't really have an interest in high blood pressure because he doesn't feel like that affects him at all. I don't have any symptoms. Why do I need to take high blood pressure medication? You know, I think we can develop rapport with people when they know that we've like actually been on the ground there and seen what they're doing. That that helps, I think, bridge a big gap. Uh, and then, of course, making sure that they know that, you know, part of our job is to be an advocate for them. I tell people like this, look, I mean, in theory, the job and you and me all want the same thing, you to be safe and happy and healthy and go about your life, not just at work, but at home, too. So in that regard, there's not this competition or, you know, we're all trying to, you know, go after some competing interests. It's, you know, we all want the same goal. You're talking about total worker health. Of course. Concept from NIOSH, which actually have been championing total worker health. And that's that's very important aspect of the practice of occupational medicine. As we understand the community factors or other non-occupational factors impacting the health of an individual or a worker in occupational settings. And that's very, very important to understand. And conceptually, we, we have moved forward uh, with that understanding. Are you optimistic about where we are and where we're going? I am optimistic. I mean, in part, COVID brought some attention to our field that was sorely needed. People said, gee, there are these doctors that know about the workplace and environmental hazards and protecting people and respirators. And it's like, uh, yeah, we've been here this whole time. So I am optimistic that the the need is out there because, you know, you have probably seen it like me. There's jobs for occupational medicine doctors everywhere right now all the time. And I think we need to capitalize on that and make sure that people are seeing that putting an occupational medicine doctor in that job is better than putting, you know, some other doctor who's not trained in occupational medicine. In it. And unfortunately, the problem is if we continue to have a shortage, those jobs will get filled by people who are not us. And then people say, oh, look, you know, these other doctors can do it. So why do we really need occupational medicine doctors? And they won't know what they're missing. And so this is the time when we need to continue to leverage advocacy, as you've brought up many times, both at a federal level, at a state level, at a local level, to ensure that the stakeholders who like our services invest in those services, to make sure that, you know, for example, the workers' compensation system, and by the way, I've never met a work comp insurer who didn't want an Ahmed doc involved, make sure that they have to get in the game and that they're buying in and putting money into training. And make sure that the federal government is as well. I mean, you know, pediatrics as a field had the same issue of funding as a specialty, uh, and they solved it in 1999 when Congress allocated $150 million specifically for pediatric training programs, and that's continued to this day. And the data for the past 20, whatever, three years has shown that that solved the problem. They more than doubled the amount of, you know, pediatric specialists being trained. We need the same kind of thing in occupational medicine. And I am enthusiastic and encouraged that we're going to get there because our field is starting to be younger and starting to be more out there. And I think you're going to see more people uh, interested in physicians with specifically public health training 
because the world's eye is on public health right now following COVID. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Zeke. I'm optimistic and excited and thrilled in a sense of where we're going and where we're heading. So happy new year, 2023, and happy holidays to everyone. Thanks for having me. Same to you. I'm looking forward to working under you as ACOM president one of these days. (laughs) Thank you both very much. 